Hey, it's David Ward. Real quick before we get to the episode, I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the content, please share and subscribe to the podcast. I've heard every time you subscribe, a drummer gets their wings. So please help a drummer out and subscribe. All right, now on to the show. Enjoy. Hey, welcome to Musicians on the Record. This is the show where we bring you the musician's story and another episode of the Rock Therapy Show. It's not talk therapy, it's rock therapy. We're having conversations with musicians about music, about mental health, about mindset and motivation. I'm your host, David Ward. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and unlicensed drummer. I'm just drumming without a license these days, Bob. So um, I'm so excited to have a to he's joining us on the show he's an author a drummer a recovery coach and contributor to the 21st century drummer magazine dr bob weathers is with us welcome bob uh, thank you david i'm happy to be with you i'm I'm really grateful you're here. And just an important distinction, just in case anybody isn't clear, um, you are Dr. Bob, not the Dr. Bob, as far as co-founder of AA, but another Dr. Bob, just as 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 important. So I, I sometimes get teased at a few of the treatment centers that I consult with, because I'm old enough and I'll say, I actually am the original Dr. Bob. <laughs> well, but to some folks you are, right? So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Thank you. So I'm really grateful you're on the show with us today because I think it's an important topic talking about addiction and recovery and certainly some of my favorite musicians have struggled with it and oh, yeah. sadly have passed uh, yeah. passed away from it. Yeah. For folks who don't know you though, Bob, first, and we're going to have your website, they can check it out more at drbobweathers.com. Tell us a little bit, of, give us maybe the few, two or three minute um, brief yeah. summary of who you are as a musician and a doctor, please. Yeah, yeah. That's a, I could go for three or four days sure, on right. topic, so <laughs> if I can condense it. Um, I, uh, I grew up in Texas. Uh, my dad was an amateur musician and my mom was too, so I grew up in a musical family. But of the kids, I was the one that actually took music the furthest. My dad was a, a, a bass player in a jazz group in the 50s. He went to medical school in Kansas City. And uh, my last name was Weathers. It was Stormy Weathers and the Raindrops. Nice. <laughs> so, so I grew up with an acoustic bass in the household my entire life. Dad was a jazz bassist. And so I listened a lot to jazz early on. Mom was a pianist and played more classical music like Debussy and the Bell. And so those influences uh, really impacted me. Uh, my favorite hobby, even as a kid, uh, was to sit in front of, we had a hi-fi uh, record player, which means it wasn't stereo, it was just one single speaker. I would cross my legs and spend hours in front of that. I was really quite taken by music. And I've been kind of an um, omnivorous, I, I like every style of music. I, I've played jazz for the last 40 years or so, but I grew up cutting my teeth on rock. And before that was really deeply imprinted with classical music as well as, uh, as jazz, my dad's, my dad's jazz music. So I, I started drumming as a boy. I, real quickly, I'm reasonably bright, but you wouldn't have known that early on as a student. I, I'm old enough to have uh, been born before there was ADD. There was no diagnosis. In fact, there was probably before Ritalin, there was no medication. So my first three years in school, I was very, very active boy. And uh, I don't know how you flunk behavior, but I flunked behavior repeatedly. <laughs> I, I, they wouldn't even let me go to recess. I'd have to go out. I'd have to sit in the principal's office during recess. It was not good. And uh, uh, my parents had started me on piano at a painfully young age. Uh, they were both, 
I saw that I was into music and I hated piano, hated piano. Mm -hmm. So I was of that generation, David, that uh, watched Ringo Starr on TV with the Beatles at, on, uh, in February of 1964. And six months later, right. announced to my parents, I'm switching from piano to drums. And I think for both of them, the thought was, this is just a, this is a temporary phase for little Bobby. It was 55 years later, and it's not so temporary. Wow. And I'm highly active. I continue to be very active as a drummer. Um, uh, this all precedes your, your other question. I'll, we can talk more about the drumming as we talk. I uh, um, uh, got into psychology for a couple of reasons. I, I, uh, uh, my dad was a psychiatrist, and so I was exposed to it in the family. Came from a family. Everybody in my family was in the medical profession except for me. And I was always really oriented towards the the arts and the humanities. Um, I just, you know, I, I did well in math and science and just didn't like it. I really was turned on by philosophy and what makes people tick and definitely by art and music. And so I got into psychology and in some ways it was the imprint of my, um, uh, uh, my father's influence, my family's influence. I think also it was, um, I came from a really uh, challenging family situation. The best thing about my parents is that they were both bright <laughs> and there were some real limitations there. Um, and uh, I had to kind of sort that out. So I, 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 I started studying psychology as an undergraduate, went through a six-year doctoral program, which is ridiculously long. But yes. I got yes. out of that, and I, I, uh, I had a career as a professor in psychology as well as a clinical psychologist. You're licensed, and I was licensed as a clinical psychologist. That was about 20 years, 25 years. And I have a kind of a strange trajectory that's unusual statistically, David, and that is I started getting addicted to alcohol and then other drugs in midlife. For mm. most people, it starts early. Yes. Uh, what drummer do you know that wasn't into drugs and alcohol? Right, right. <laughs> well, I'm exactly. going to raise my hand. I was, I was that one. It always seemed kind of redundant to me. I still get so high off of drumming. And as a kid, I did. And I came from a lot of addiction in my family, so I don't want to sound... Uh, uh, two goody two shoes about it. I think there was a good instinct inside that I did. I needed to watch out for that. I needed not to go down that rabbit hole. And actually, the major transcendent experience I experienced as a boy was drumming and through music. And it wasn't until after high school that I had my first drink of alcohol. And we weren't a religious family, so like this is not some religious thing. It was just like music was that much for me. Um, but uh, over the course of the next, you know, however many years, I kind of dabbled with it. But in midlife. You know, if you look at midlife crisis in Wikipedia, I'm quite sure it has my photograph. <laughs> you know? And so I really went uh, really down a major rabbit hole with addiction in midlife. And I managed to not only lose my, I was a tenured professor. I lost my tenured professorship. Uh, this will cut close to, yeah, I lost my license as a psychologist, all mm. as a function of addiction. Mm. Um, I, sometimes, I do a lot of talking to professional groups at this point, and I'll sometimes say, there's no such thing as addiction problems in psychology. I can't speak for your particular discipline, clinical psychology. There are no clinical psychologists that have addiction problems, because if you have an addiction problem, you are by definition a former psychologist. And it's really, uh, it's, uh, it's, an odd, it's an odd piece, and I've been active in trying to make a difference there. So I got very secretive about my addiction, and then really got myself in way over my head. So Long story short, 10 years ago, I got into recovery and um, I began to pick up my, my life again, basically. It was a tremendously devastating loss. You can appreciate it. Everything that I had worked towards, and I love, I love psychology. I love counseling and therapy. 
I love training and supervising and teaching all of that. And I lost access to all of that mm. with, with what happened to me. Mm. So the first order of the day was to get sober and, uh, and, then, and then figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. The last 10 years now, I've been devoted completely, 100% to um, working in addiction recovery. That's all I do. I, I lead 14 groups a week at eight different treatment centers here in Orange wow. County. Wow. And I see clients at a local office here in Orange County about 10 hours a week. And uh, in fact, a good bit of that is online. I have clients because of online access. I have clients in Europe and Australia and South Africa. So it goes. It's ironic that as a licensed psychologist, I couldn't see somebody if they moved out of state. You'll know this. My wife is a licensed therapist. Mm -hmm. Ironically, as a recovery coach, I have access um, uh, well around the planet. And I'm really grateful for that piece. I do miss being a clinical psychologist. I, I do miss it. I'm not going to say uh, that I don't. One other piece, and then I'll let you dive in, and that is, it's perhaps self-evident, but most of my career, especially living here in Los Angeles, I've had a lot of clients that are artists and musicians, many in the movie industry, but also a lot of musicians. They come to me because I'm a musician-friendly, uh, in the past, psychologist and now a recovery coach, and we'll talk more into this, but I have a particular burden, not only as, I, I really think my primary identity is as a drummer, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Psychology is, I've played, in, I played a, a, a actively in music over the years, and I've literally played with bands, and you probably had the same question. People will ask me six months down the line, by the way, Bob, what is your day gig? They won't even. They won't even know because they don't really discuss it that much. Right. And uh, there it is. My license plate, which I've had for about thirty years, be the Bostonian present uh, pronunciation of the word drummer. It just is drama. Drama. <laughs> and it, it actually, go. every time I see it, it's tongue in cheek. It makes me smile. So, uh, I've worked a lot uh, with musicians over the years in psychotherapy, and uh, a lot of them, as as you implied earlier, uh, around addiction. So. Uh, use me today in whatever way I can to be of, of service to you and your program. I, I have a deep passion for this work that I do in addiction recovery and definitely the deepest roots for me in our reaching out to the artistic and musical community. I just really care a lot about this. Well, thank you for your uh, bravery and, you know, just putting that out there, your own personal struggle and recovery, because I think it's a, an important thing for folks, musician or otherwise, yeah. to be able to know that there is hope if you're struggling, yeah. that yeah. things can change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I ask you what was, you know, I talk a lot about with folks about that shift from, you know, we, it's called a bunch of different things, hitting bottom, yeah. That yeah. spiritual awakening, whatever you want to call yeah. it. For yeah. you, what was that of yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. saying, I don't want this anymore, I want something better? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I talk about this a lot with clients, David, and, and I'd be interested in comparing notes with you. I'll say that for me, and I, I think for most of my clients, most of them don't wake up some morning and have kind of a come to Jesus moment like, oh, you know, I think I want to recover. It really was gun to head for me. And the gun to head for me was the relationship that has now uh, uh, been my marriage. We've been together for 10 years. I felt like it was like the first really quality relationship I've had. I, I came into uh, adulthood dating and early marriage. I was married twice earlier on and lengthy relationships, the first one especially. I came in with some really, I think, distorted templates for a relationship. And you'll know what I mean as a therapist yourself. Yeah. And I don't have anybody to blame. I just kept picking relationships and then recreating in relationships those distorted blueprints or templates. And it took me as long as it took me. I'm a very, very slow learner, apparently. 
<laughs> when it comes to relationships. And so around age 50 or 55, I realized I finally felt like I've got a relationship that matters to me. But by that time, I had I accumulated a lot of momentum in my addiction. And that was not going to be acceptable to Colleen. She's my wife. And um, it was really the prospect of losing the relationship that woke me up. Um, I, I have to say that, that when I lost my, my professorship and then eventually lost my license, you'd think that that would have stopped me in my addictive behavior. It actually exacerbated it. So it, it really accelerated things. So by the time I met Colleen, who herself was a therapist, I was going full bore and that was not going to work for her. And I'm grateful for that. It definitely was enough to get my attention. And to be honest with you, David, when I got into uh, recovery, uh, I think I was doing it for her. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I, there was nothing in me. I was very identified with that point with addictive uh, behavior, my uh, my social, uh, my friendships, uh, music, art, dance. All of that was associated with it. And it took as long as it took to begin to internalize that to where now this is my uh, uh, cause. I remember Colleen saying to me, "Bobby, you need to do this for yourself," and because she could tell I was doing it for her. And then it. It occurred to me over time, David, that you know, doing it for our relationship was probably the most selfish thing I could do because this relationship has brought me what psychology would call earned security. Over 10 years, I've, I've grown psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually in a way that I, I, everybody's different, but I intuited for me it would take this kind of relationship, a sane relationship where you can address conflict and move through that. Um, and uh, I can vouch for it. I don't know how it's gone for you in your life, but I, I'll say this much, is that I'm 10 years down the road. Colleen just, and I just celebrated our 10th anniversary in August. Congrats. And I guarantee you this for sure is that I, uh, first of all, I still get butterflies when I see her, and that's unprecedented. You know, if you don't work on a relationship, you end up losing that right. soon enough. And so, and the way I'm wired, and you can probably already get a sense of me, and as we talk more about this, I am by nature a very passionate person, and it just killed me in relationships to have the connection attenuate over time to where there were just this kind of little slight pulse. I knew I couldn't do that, and I think I needed to learn I needed to learn how to do what's necessary to keep a relationship passionate alive. And then I had to find a partner who was capable of that same thing. And Colleen is, I'm, uh, I'm going to start crying. <laughs> Just, uh, That's deep, great. Deep, yeah. Grateful for our relationship. Yeah. Absolutely. A lot to be grateful for there, it sounds yeah. like. And, you know, there obviously, as you probably know, too, the whole theory of attachment uh, issue, it sounds like you had that solid connection and attachment with Colleen. And even though it started out as doing it for her, something clicked where you yeah. ended up doing it for you. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I, you know, if you think about it in terms of attachment theory, just simply, I came into the relationship and I'd only ever been really insecure. And my own insecure style is the one that wants to pursue connection. Some people distance and shut off. I'm just the opposite. I'm intense and I'll chase you down. Yeah. And uh, it's just, that's the way that insecurity manifested for me. So the good news is it got me connected to Colleen. The fact is it was based in insecurity and that was not going to work long-term for her. And I used this term earlier, but I really have appreciated this from uh, attachment theory, which is that you can earn security in a healthy relationship or a healthy set of relationships. And I've got a circle of, of friends that have been with me 
definitely through thick and thin. And Colleen at the top of the list. Uh, Colleen and my daughter Amanda are the two that have really, I mean, I've been transformed. I'm, I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago, surely not 20 years ago as a function of relationships. Yeah. That's great. You know, they say our genius is in our wound, right? So we, yeah. we, we yeah. take from all of that stuff, our struggles, uh, you know, and we, you're, you're doing good works in the world from it, which is really awesome. Thank you. Um, Thank yeah. You. Thank you. For those who don't know, uh, say a little bit more about the difference between a recovery coach and a you know psychologist as well. But what is a recovery coach, and how do they yeah. function differently? Yeah, it's a good question, David. Uh, you know, it's funny because I I uh, I studied and then taught psychology for decades. You you can't really take the clinical psychology out of me, so I come to recovery very much from a uh, psychological uh, bandwidth. Most I think. Uh, 80 to 90% of the treatment centers of the United States are 12-step based, which, which uh, is a certain orientation. And, and just for simplicity's sake, one of the, the kind of uh, maxims in 12 steps is that addiction is a spiritual problem that requires a spiritual solution. And I actually fully agree with that. I think it's partial. <laughs> I think it's partial. I fully agree with that because I, I, I do want to host spirituality. I think of spirituality in probably more of a universal universalistic way, whatever is of highest value to you or to me, David, whatever, whatever represents, uh, uh, my purpose, my perceived purpose on this planet, um, uh, whatever, however I find meaning, I think somebody can be a full on theist, for example, Christian or Jewish. I think they can be full on atheist. And I think still, uh, that spirituality is right at the heart. It's kind of like you remember from studying Abraham Maslow that it's really kind of the peak motivation is to get to self actualization and self transcendence. So there's no question for me that that's key. I'll tell you this having said this, and this is where my bias comes in from my background in psychology, as with your own background, also coming out of the medical matrix with my entire family being in the medical profession. Um, I, I'm very much uh, also view, and I'll, I say this to all my clients, I also view addiction as being a psychological problem that requires psychological solutions. And for sure, it's a biomedical problem that requires biomedical solutions. And so I, it's, it's really uh, embracing all of that. And uh, uh, just the piece that I'm the most practiced in, I've been a psychologist or in this, I've been in the field of psychology for 40 years now, I better be better at it than right. I am at other orientations. Right. Now, you asked a question about what recovery coaching is. At this point, it's an unlicensed uh, uh, field. It, eventually, like every other field, marriage and family therapy, et cetera, it'll eventually be regulated. My daughter's a social worker. She mm -hmm. has to be licensed to practice yes. social work in Texas. Yes. And so it's not regulated at this point, which is, I think, good news, bad news. It allows for me to practice when I, when I lost my psychology license. Uh, I, bring, I had somebody say to me, a friend of mine said, Bob, you're the most overqualified recovery coach on the planet. <laughs> that was a nice compliment. I don't right. know if that's true or not. I certainly know, I certainly know addiction from the inside and I didn't uh, always know it from the inside. I think I've always known a fair bit about addiction from the outside, but I certainly know more about it now. And so what I do is I bring to recovery coaching that kind of twin expertise, kind of the subjective as well as the more objective. And what it means functionally, David, is what I uh, uh, implied earlier, is that's all I do. I, if I see individuals, if I see couples, if I work with families, it's all around addiction. It's all centered around that. It's one of the ways that I, I 
maintain my relationship to the various licensing boards is that I have a very narrow scope of practice. I focus only on that. And so, for example, if you're a therapist, I'm working with somebody that wants to work on, let's say, marital issues separate from addiction and recovery, I'd refer them to you. And I do that uh, not frequently. And interesting, obversely, I work, uh, I work in a local counseling center, I'll receive referrals from therapists that are working with clients that uh, they've been working with on individual issues or relational issues. They'll refer to me for um, uh, addiction-specific concerns because I probably have more expertise in that than most therapists do. So I like that that kind of uh, referencing one another. I'll say this piece. You know, my wife is, is a, a licensed marriage and family therapist and Colleen and I've talked a lot about this, we've presented a lot, in mm -hmm. fact, to state organizations and so on on this topic, is that most therapists presumably ought to understand psychology better than most people in the recovery world by virtue of the fact that you're just so deeply practiced, trained, sure. internships, and all of that, licensed. Yes. But many recovery workers know more about addiction than do therapists. Yeah. I'll tell you an embarrassing admission, uh, David, is that when I was in graduate school those years ago, I told you it was a six-year graduate program, I didn't have one course in addiction. I had one lecture mm. in six years. Yeah. And I got, a, I, got out of, uh, I got out of graduate school, actually, while I was still in graduate school. I started working as a psych assistant in private practice and it became radically apparent that one lecture was not going to suffice for what it was I had to deal with. And so nowadays, at least here in California, you can tell me how it is in your neck of the woods, there's at least a requirement for one course, which is better than one lecture, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. But the latest statistics I read out of Washington was SAMHSA, the Mental Health and uh, Services Administration. Up to 50% of the clients that you and I see coming into outpatient practice present with a clinically diagnosable addiction. Uh, they, they, you know this from your own experience. They don't come in saying, hi, hi, David, I want to address right. my alcohol problem or I'm smoking weed all the time. Yep. They'll come in saying, I've got a marriage problem or a parenting problem or can, you, can we talk about my work? But you'll, you'll see them for a handful of sessions. You realize they're just pounding alcohol at night or, right. or whatever. And so that's, that's a very startling statistic in light of the fact that most of us have one course if we're fortunate. I had one, I mean, I had one lecture on it. Uh, it's just not nearly sufficient. So I think one of the things I'm interested in doing is educating therapists. I speak, I just spoke last week uh, to the state of Idaho, to their, uh, their therapists at the university there. Uh, I, I love educating therapists about addiction and I'm extremely friendly towards psychology because it's so much my background. Sure. I also really enjoy educating recovery people. This would be people that get oftentimes get into treatment themselves and then go back and get certification at the state or national level as chemical dependency counselors. I love educating them about psychology because you mentioned attachment theory earlier. Uh, yeah, virtually anything that's going on in modern psychology, contemporary psychology, most recovery workers have just a very scant familiarity with it. And I just felt like I'd like to help participate there. So that's a little bit about what I do and how I see you know, recovery coaching intersecting with psychology. That's great. And I, I really appreciated what you said as well, because and thankfully it's shifting, but it's, you know, addiction bottom line is a medical issue versus a moral issue, right? We used to yeah. think, well, people are just yeah. weak or whatever, but we're learning that the brain chemistry is, yeah. uh, is yeah. so involved in all of this. Can you yeah. speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I teach clients, you know, it's amazing to me, and you may have some experience with this yourself, David, I work with clients that are 
I mean, they're just days out of detox yeah. when I work with them. Oftentimes, I'm by definition, most of the clients I work with are in early recovery, and some are, I mean, just literally days. And what's amazing to me is that once you get through acute withdrawal, which generally won't take more than seven or 10 days, the brain begins to recompensate. And so you've got a lot of traction there. And so I start from the beginning doing, talking about what you just talked about. I say, I want to help you guys understand what goes on in the brain around addiction, what makes us vulnerable to it, the, the impact of it on our, uh, not only our, our behavior, but our brains. And, and I'll, I'll sometimes, I've started doing this more recently. I'll say now at the end of a uh, these are groups where it's, they're very kind of psychoeducational. We're in dialogue. I'll say, now, does this in, will this information about addiction, will it keep you sober? And they're wise to this. Go, no. And I said, that's the right answer is that, that, that if addiction was a front, if, if it was a frontal cortex problem, which it's not, then I could get really smart about it and just never use it. In fact, if that was the case, I would never have gotten addicted. <laughs> right. right, exactly. Yeah, so you're I a knew, smart guy. Well, I don't know. I knew a lot about addiction, that's for sure, at least <laughs> clinically. Yeah. And so it's not. I do think it gives them a leg up, and you touched on why I think it gives them a leg up. I think because whether, whether they're in families that have been because little Johnny or little Susie's at risk of dying because of heroin addiction or uh, methamphetamine. Very understandable. Parents and family members, they're freaked out. They don't lead with fear, though. They won't. It's too vulnerable to say, I'm scared for you, David. What I'll do is I'll judge you. Right. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll shame you in hopes of getting you to change. And that's kind of one step forward and three steps backwards, basically. And so clients, by the time I see them, have internalized a tremendous amount of self-loathing and self-judgment. And if I feel like, and so that moral piece you just talked yeah. about, they're moralizing about themselves. Right. They got plenty of feedback from their media environment. And then look at societally, look at societally. Right. There was a study done at Johns Hopkins University uh, School of Public Health a few years ago, and they listed all the diagnoses diagnoses in the diagnostic manual, the DSM, yeah. uh, Psychology and Psychiatry. Yeah. They listed all the diagnoses and they had people rate them in terms of which is uh, has the most uh, negative judgment, which is the worst of these. And no kidding, at the very bottom of the barrel were the substance use disorders. Right. Probably no big surprise. Yeah. And so you can't grow up in this society, much less your family, much less your psyche, and not have a tremendous amount inside of shame. And yeah. I think that good information is a big step forward in terms of managing that. It won't keep me sober, but I can guarantee you one thing, shame will, will lead me to relapse. I can guarantee yes. you for that. That's so if there's right. a way to break that cycle. So I'm all for education, not assuming that there's, I don't assume there's a magic bullet in addiction recovery. There's not a single thing. And you know this, it's, we're, we're too complicated as beings, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, for there to be a single answer. But I think information uh, uh, is freeing. I think it can be very helpful as, as one part of it, and I'm real dedicated to that, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I think it's great, and uh, you know that's one of the reasons I wanted to actually do uh, this rock therapy show, is to really break down more of the yeah. stigma and, and yeah. to just normalize this. We're people, yeah. and we have struggles. So, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, from from Elvis to Hendrix to so many uh, hundreds of others, Bob. Some of my favorite musicians have struggled with addiction, have died from it. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more? What 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 do you think? Why do musicians? I mean, and other artists, and certainly people, but musicians specifically. Why do you think they struggle or are vulnerable so much around addiction? I can still remember uh, my first year in high school as a sophomore in biology class with Mr. Pittman and the speaker, the loudspeaker in the classroom coming on, and Mr. Peterson, the principal, saying, ladies and gentlemen, Jimi Hendrix just passed away. Never will mm. forget that. It was, uh, just, uh, 
I was in a band as a boy. My brother was a guitarist, and we played Hendrix. Um, uh, we played. We learned that stuff off the radio. Played at dances. Can you people used to dance to that? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I was I was way way into him when he passed away, and then a few weeks later, Janis Joplin, and so on. It goes. Right. You know, soon enough, later on in the decade, Keith Moon and John Bonham, all these all these avatars for you and me as drummers and as musicians. Uh, I'm a deep, deep lover of jazz and have been for decades and so much lost. Right. Charlie Parker, John yes. Holt, I mean, just, just go down the list yeah. of all the giants. And really, ultimately, Miles Davis. I mean, these are people that really, really struggle with uh, addiction. There's, there's no single answer to this, but I thought about it a lot. I'll tell you one in into it. Um, it was after I finished graduate school. I finished graduate school about 35 years ago. Well, there's a lot that's happened in the last 30 years. And right after I finished graduate school, there was a woman at a local research institute up in Santa Barbara who began studying what has now become a whole literature in psychology of highly sensitive person, a highly sensitive person literature, mm-hmm. Elaine Aaron. She literally did her research after I graduated high school mm-hmm. from a graduate school. And I've read her material and viewed it and pondered this a lot because I've worked a lot with musicians. I'll tell you this. When I ask in a room full of, let's say, 20, I work primarily with young men, and many of them are musicians. If I ask a group of 20 men, if I define just a few characteristics of being what Elaine Aaron says is a highly sensitive person, her research has been done cross-culturally across the world. It turns out that 20% of individuals are what they merit this. Uh, it's, a, it's not a pathological diagnosis. It's just a temperamental thing. If you're highly sensitive, it means that you notice things that people don't notice. You, you feel things differently. You certainly are attuned to aesthetics in terms of beauty, et cetera. There's a whole list of characteristics. And so 20% of people, and it's equally distributed with men and women. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a chick thing. It's men and women <laughs> equally distributed. Yes. And, and I'll, I'll ask, I'll, I'll discuss, discuss it about as much as we just did. And I'll say, how many of you would say this fits for you? And there'll be 80% of the, the people I see in, a, in, in the rooms that I work with. And I work with a lot of groups. It's not a scientific study, but it's a, it's a growing sample. And, and then if I get into it, more deeply and talk about those that are connected to art and music it's virtually a hundred percent and you and i both know exceptions to that there are plenty of drummers that are here and they're not particularly sensitive people that's right. that's fine right. i am one of those and i don't know you david but i imagine that you are by virtue yeah. of the fact that you're <laughs> as a therapist as right. well as uh, as a musician that cares about these matters right. and so i think there's a i think there's a disproportionate representation of high sensitivity among artistic types this is not a scientific thing it's more of an intuitive hunch and kind of yeah. clinically grounded and so with with the fact that there'll be musicians there'll be musicians that are just kind of lunks i think a good number of them are highly sensitive and you've seen interviews with jimmy yeah. uh, or with elvis or we just go down the list and you see these people they're extremely oftentimes introverted yes. they spent years and years woodshedding developing their acts right. they're thrust onto stage in front of people adoring fans prince comes to mind i mean just right. massive adulation yes. and uh their giftedness is obvious, but they're not, they're really kind of like Brian Wilson. He wasn't made for these times. He just wasn't. I mean, just, what the hell do you do with that? And so I think a lot of them implode into self-medication. I could be wrong about that, but my sense is they implode in self-medication. It's a way to manage the uh, the outer. 
there's another piece, though, that happens, and, and I'd love to talk into this with you, is that I, I've worked with a lot of musicians, and you have too, I would imagine, that if they ponder stopping whatever it is that they use, alcohol, uh, uh uh, marijuana, any substance, they'll tell me, Bob, I've never composed a song without being altered. Right. I, you know, I've never once performed on stage without being messed up. I mean, that is common. Yeah. And they're scared to death and understandably so. And for a lot of them, they just say, there's no way I'm going to, the sobriety thing is going to be the end of my career. I'm done. Right. I forget it. I'm not going to do it. Sure. And so uh, we can talk more about the implications of that. But I think that, you know, I've had so many of them, t- uh, musicians tell me, and I think, no, I do want to say a word about that. I think it's also tied into the creative process, David, and you can reflect on your own experience. Uh, I imagine you're a creative person. I figure that I am. I mean, creativity kind of flows through me. But if I get into a creative funk or a block or if I get depressed or if I'm, on pres- if I'm pressured on a timeline, to move into the mental space that creativity requires, it's not fully a left brain thing, as you and I both know. And if I can alter it with substance, it, it's possible it'll crack open a door into kind of non-ordinary thinking, which might be seen as kind of a facsimile of creativity. The downside to that, and we talk more about this, I don't, I don't feel moralistic about this, I feel scientific about it, is that if addiction knocks out the front part of my brain pretty thoroughly. Where, you know, addiction is primarily a midbrain phenomenon, is that most of what I need in terms of creative juices is a forebrain phenomenon. If you right. knock out my creative faculties, it's not that I won't, I, you know, I can get out of my head. I can get out of my head. I can get messed up right now and get out of my head. The problem is that I've gotten out of my head, and part of being a creative drummer or a musician, a composer for me, requires having my head intact. And so it's a strange mix there. And I think that's so it's a, I don't know if I'm articulating it well, but I think there's a certain portion of musicians that in order to create have to alter consciousness and it becomes attached to substances. And I do think that creativity is an altered state of consciousness. Is there a way to alter my state of consciousness without wiping out my forebrain, which is required for creativity? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, a, a lot of sense. In some in some places, they call it state dependent learning. You yes. sort of we we learn under that yeah. state, and yeah. then we become yeah. dependent on it. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, I've heard a lot of musicians and a lot of even actors uh, and artists talk about that. If I give yes. up the substance, I won't yeah. be as good. But that's yeah. that's yeah. the myth, I think. And yeah. some people I th- say. I think you're making a very good point, and and my thought about it, I can speak about this personally, is that drumming over the years got more and more associated for me with alcohol. I just, I was altered, and there's a fine line, and you know this is a drum because it requires so much coordination. Yes. You can't can't get too messed up and still have access to to coordinated independence, let's say. Having said that, I certainly flirted with that edge and went over it any number of times. I had to decouple uh, drumming from being altered chemically for me. Right. And there's a period of time that reminds me, I'm not much of a, of a golfer, but I understand that Tiger Woods at some point had to completely redo his golf swing from yeah. the ground because he wanted to take it to the next level. It's like that. If I want to take it to the next level, I'm going to probably have to decouple this state-dependent learning from being messed up on uh, drugs or other, you know, alcohol or whatever. And it's a way of kind of building it up from the beginning. I don't think you start from scratch, but I think I can guarantee you it felt odd to me right. to be playing and not be chemically altered. It doesn't anymore. It's, and and I, I, have, I have no doubt, I'm 64. I'm Paul McCartney's uh, yeah. infamous age right now. <laughs> 64, I have no doubt that I'm, I'm the best drummer I've ever been right now in my life, which is incredible. 
That's oh. time limited because I'm getting older, but right. it's just, I feel like I got all cylinders firing and that was not possible for, uh, that I'm really grateful for. Very right. selfish and, and also a bit prideful. I want to be a damn good drummer. Sure, right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. And believe me, even with all my faculties, it's hard to get the independence. So I, I couldn't imagine, uh, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. But you know, we're talking, that state-dependent learning, that goes for so many behaviors, not just, you know, music, but, you know, people tell me, how do you have sober sex, for God's sakes? That we yes. haven't even got same, into that. Same, so. same difference, same difference. Same difference. I have plenty of people bring that to me. Yeah. And it's, it's, it, it, that's a perfect analogy. If I've got, let's say that I've got, for whatever reason, self-consciousness, I see people every week and you do too, self-consciousness around sex, uh, maybe I have trauma around sex, the only way that I can let go into sexual presence is to be altered. Just take that as a perfect analogy to what we're talking about with music and creativity. In order to be creative, I've got to let go. And if the only way I can let go is alteration, you can see how those get uh, concretized together. Right. It's very much the same process. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and being a recovery coach, you know, that one of the benefits, it sounds like, is you can, you can kind of do this online stuff with folks all yeah. over the world and they can yeah. contact you. What do you hear from musicians, Bob, around their common, especially when people are on tour or, or traveling, some of their common triggers that they really struggle, you know, cues yeah. to want to use. Yeah. I just saw somebody this last week. I don't even have to be theoretical, but I can't just go back. This next week, I saw somebody in a local treatment group that was traveling nationally with a, with a, with a rock group. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll just see what he was talking about. This is less my experience because I don't think I ever made it to that level of fame. It's just that he's inundated by, by uh, drugs. I mean, just in, right. It, alcohol and drugs, it's just, it goes part and parcel with, with that kind of fame. Hmm. And it's also, like we were talking about earlier, it's, it's probably a, a, a way of coping with that yeah. kind of, uh, with, with wealth, with instant celebrity and so on. But he was just describing to me in great detail. It's like how he's realizing for him, and this is a very painful juncture, and, is, and I don't know how this will go for him. He's realizing that he can't continue that way, but he's quite attached to the, to the, the group he's in, the fame that he has, and so on like that. But he realizes there's no way. The triggers environmentally are so yeah. huge in terms of just instant access and kind of expectation. Sure. He talks about plates of Coke and, you know, mm. bottles. Of, it, it, it's just yeah. everywhere he goes. Uh, there's, but there's another thing that I've thought about uh, over the years in my own work. There's a lot of focus on external uh, triggers in addiction recovery, you know, people, places, and things, and so on. But you and I are both therapists by background, is that I feel like the internal triggers probably outweigh the external triggers. Sure. And so if I think about musicians on the road, let's say, in terms of internal triggers, the number one trigger for relapse, David, is stress. Stress. Stress gets defined for people differently. Uh, most people will say the most stressful thing in their lives are relationships. We have the most skin in the game with relationships. And when those don't go well, it stresses us out. Secondly, people will say it's financial stressors, work-related stressors, all of that stuff. That's and and the third thing I hear the most of is boredom. The third thing, third thing I hear about is people just get bored and they use to deal with it. You think about being on the road, you're separated from your familiar surroundings. You're with a band and you probably have friction. It kind of goes to the territory, especially if people are altered because they're disinhibited. So there's going to be a lot more uh, 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 stuff uh going people going off and so on you've got that going on you've got you've got financial concerns only because there's pressure from record companies tour managers and so on to be just producing no sleep etc just keep going and i think also uh you know especially if you reach a certain level i think of you know those films with the beatles where they're just trapped in 
in a hotel room. I know lots of musicians, they just live from one hotel room and tour bus to the next. And so I, boredom, lack of stimulation, lack of connection, and so on. All of those, uh, even if somebody was perfectly psychologically sound, all of those would be psychological triggers, it seems like to me, in terms of stress. And then if you imagine uh, the stuff that we've been talking about in terms of high sensitivity, uh, uh, yeah. we didn't talk about this earlier, and I've wondered about this, and I'd be curious what you think about this. I've wondered what percentage of musicians, we'll just stick with musicians, what percentage come from higher than normal levels of traumatic stress in their background. Right. Uh, I'm speaking firsthand is that I know that music for me was my first and very powerful uh, a coping device with, the, with with what was going on in my household. Yeah. I don't want to generalize from that one experience, and I think I have a skewed sample. Virtually 100% of people that are in addiction come from higher than normal levels right. of developmental trauma. There's just yeah. a lot of research to support that. Right. So I'm, that's who I'm working with, and a good number of those people are artists. And so I don't know. I, I, I'm sure that there are musicians and artists that come from healthy, facilitated backgrounds. I just interviewed somebody this summer. I went to England and interviewed the drummer Bill Bruford. Oh, sure. From Yes? Uh, yeah, yeah, from Yes. Yeah, from Yes. Great. Sat with Bill Bruford in, uh, in Guildford uh, uh, near his home in England. It's, yeah. it's an upcoming interview. It's going to be in this 21st Century Magazine, awesome. a drummer magazine. I think Bill came from a, a healthy family. I mean, I talked to Bill, and I, I think he, comes, he, he, he grew up with lots of support for his creativity, and look at where it took him. That's just not my background, and that's right. not the background of most of the people I work with. So, right. so that's another factor, I think, in terms of vulnerability to addiction. And yeah. then take that on the road if you've got, if you've got psychological vulnerability to a depression, to anxiety, right. if you have PTSD, if you've right. got attentional problems. It's just all of that stuff. Uh, is a setup, it seems like to me, for addictive behaviors. Yeah, no question. And then, you know, some of those environmental cues, if you have a plate full of cocaine uh, passed over dinner, that, that makes it even more challenging, yeah. too. Yeah. But I totally agree. I mean, the, there's a whole theory, obviously, as you know, the, where trauma as a basis of addiction and that, yeah. you know, we're trying to relieve some of that trauma with whatever substance someone's using. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I was, I was, I can speak to that firsthand. And I, I, I present this, you know, I present the, the ACE studies that were done by Kaiser hospital system in California, where they, they looked at correlations between childhood development. They called them adverse childhood experiences, ACE. They looked at them and correlated them with cancer later on, heart disease later on, diabetes later on, and addiction later on, a whole host of things. And what they found is that you can't predict from a traumatic background 100% that somebody's going to become addicted. When I work, when I work with clients, every one of them will have siblings yeah. that weren't addicted. I'm an exception. There's no one in my nuclear family that wasn't addicted. That's, yeah. that's the exception. But most of them have siblings that grew up in the same background. But if you go, if you look at it from the reverse, you go back, you go back from those that are actively addicted and you go back to look at their childhood background. It's virtually 100%. Right. Occasionally, very rarely, David, I'll have somebody say, actually, I grew up in a very facilitative, a healthy family. And I don't disbelieve them. They're kind of the exception that yeah. proves the rule, but it's definitely the case that the prevailing hypothesis in addiction medicine about the origins of addiction is simply the self-medication hypothesis right. that, you know, people will say to me or somebody else who's using, can't you party a little bit less, Bob? Do you always have to be high? That kind of thing. Right. I think it represents a profound misunderstanding is that for most addicts I work with that are early in recovery, they were not partying. They weren't having fun. They're basically trying to stave off getting sick. 
right. with withdrawal and yeah. so on later on. Of course. If you get underneath that, most of them would agree, I've been depressed and or anxious, et cetera, my entire life. And you begin looking at it in terms of developmental trauma, and it begins to make sense. Here's the, here's the, the easy, simple thing. I was raised as a guy. Mm-hmm. You were too. Yeah. And we were raised not to, not to whinge about our childhoods. It's like, get over it. You know, that right. was in the background. Here's, the, here's the, the, the medical reality is to the extent that somebody's raised in a traumatizing household, and that wouldn't be everybody, but whoever's raised in that, they'll have two or three times higher than normal baseline stress levels in adulthood. And so you're just walking around as one client of mine said, you're walking around barbecuing in your own adrenaline and there's no one that can sustain that. You'll eventually find some way to manage the demons and addictive behaviors are the ticket. Right. And trying to put out that fire, right? So before we get to some of the solutions and what, um, what musicians can do about some of this, Bob, I wanted to talk about this new project to me that uh, Pamela Lynn Serafin has started and you're involved in uh, that I think is really helpful and valuable. This, the 21st century drummer magazine talk about this project and what you guys are doing. Yeah. I I met Pamela. She's, she's the wife of Danny Serafin, the the famous drummer of Chicago, et cetera. I met Pamela at a graduation a number of years ago. She was a student in the university where I taught. So we, we, we met then immediately hit it off. And we've, uh, she went on to get her master's degree. And though I wasn't her supervisor, I had a dear friend as a musician who supervised her a psychological uh, master's thesis. And I believe that she's currently pursuing a doctorate. I can't say for sure because I'm no longer uh, in university work, as I told you earlier, but Pamela uh, began to talk about this several years ago. The idea of what would it be like, Bob, to have a kind of a body, mind, spirit, holistic health perspective on drumming so that you could go to a drum magazine. I mean, I've subscribed to Modern Drummer from the very first day it was published. <laughs> and, and, I still, and I still read it cover to cover. I'm a drum geek and I love reading about gear and, yeah. and musicians and tours and new albums and so on. But she was suggesting something in a different vein. What would it be like, like to look at kind of the inside world of drummers in terms of their mental processes, including some of the things we're talking about, emotional uh, processing. What would it be like to look at health issues from a a holistic perspective? What would it be like to address spirituality and drumming? And she's done it. (laughs) She's kept it off. And so it's out now. We're coming up with the third issue this fall. I I told you I interviewed Bill Bruford for it. He'll be the cover article. And with Bill Bruford, he was very much the thinking man's drummer. And the whole whole, uh, interview with him is just, absolute gold. And one of the things that Bill said in that interview was that he's noticing that there's more and more, he goes around now, he's retired from active music. uh, He went back and got his doctorate in musicology, which is amazing. And he goes around lecturing at music schools around the world at this point. And he says, there's a hunger amongst drummers slash musicians. There's a hunger for, for, uh, 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 kind of a more diverse kind of container for musicians other than just focusing on musical technique and so on. And so people want to talk about what is it that I can do to cultivate creativity? What are the blocks that are getting in my way? What can I do to sustain a long-term career in terms of physical health? All of that. That's what Pamela's done with this magazine. And so every issue is chock full of articles, including things like this interview. I write a 
weekly, uh, weekly, it comes out twice a year, I write a, a regular uh, column that's addressing spirituality, kind of in the sense we were talking about earlier, spirituality for drummers, which is an odd thing, except that there's an audience for it. And, um, and so that's what we're addressing, is looking at drumming more holistically. I think it's cool that she's called it 21st century drummer, because I think it's kind of an advancement beyond, you know, going to Berkeley and getting my chops down, right. and then getting out and getting studio work going. That's all true, but what can I do to support that? And there's an awareness, just like there is in addiction recovery, that you've got to address the whole person if you're going to succeed in that. So this is really kind of a whole drummer philosophy that undergirds it. I'm really uh, happy and proud to be involved with uh, Pamela in this magazine. It's, it's cool, very cool. We're I love it. Our fourth issue, no, our third issue is coming up here soon, so we're working on that right now. I think it's great. Mind, body, and spirit. Uh, yeah, it's, what, it's Yeah, it's all what we're talking about. And you're, you're also... You, you're a busy guy, Bob. You're you're doing this recovery coaching and and writing, and you you're doing three podcasts yourself. We tell tell folks yeah. what your yeah. podcast is yeah. and where they yeah. can find that. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I've been involved uh, in three different podcasts over the last few years. I've just got one that's currently going on. I started off very interested in this mind, body, spirit approach to addiction recovery. Because it was personal. It was personal for me. I reached out and very quickly connected with uh, a group of people that had written a few books in what's called integral recovery. And that integral just means really integrated, integrated recovery. And so we had a podcast going with, with a couple of the leaders in that field through Integral Recovery Institute. And we put about a year's worth of podcasts out there that deal with addiction very much in this kind of holistic perspective. You'd think it would be common sense, but it's crazy how it goes in addiction recovery. You know, if you talk to a physician, they'll look at it almost exclusively as medical and don't address the psychological. You talk to a lot of therapists like you and me, and they'll focus on the psychological and miss the fact that there's a biological component. And uh, and the spiritual uh, is, although it's it, the spiritual is, uh, it's dominant in terms of, of approach with the 12-step approaches, the 12-step approaches is a turnoff to a lot of people because their spirituality doesn't feel like it resonates with that. And so I even feel like there's a lot of room for expanding what we mean by spiritual to be more sure. inclusive. So I did it to begin with myself, got involved in this podcast, and then began working for a local treatment center. You can go to Integral Recovery Institute or YouTube, and you'll see a whole spate of those interviews, podcasts. And that was a team doing that. And then I, for a little over a year, did a series of podcasts, uh, weekly podcasts called Ask an Addiction Specialist. And that's really me providing all the information I could from a psychological perspective about addiction. That's also uh, freely available online through YouTube, um, uh, if you look that up. The one I'm involved in now for the last uh, six months or so is just getting ready to get launched. I've got this problem, Dave, with the word sobriety. And Uh I can say this to you because you're a drummer. Yeah. When I got into recovery early on, this wouldn't turn off most people, but it turned me off. I don't envision having on my gravestone that Bob Weathers, he was one sober dude. That's uh, just really depressing to me. <laughs> I, uh, I don't, I, I, the part of me that's, that's always been a drummer and always will be a drummer, even if I can't lift sticks, is passionate and zealous. As I've got a lot of enthusiasm for life. And when the word sober just is an unfortunate term. I know what it means. Mm-hmm. It's an unfortunate term because I have it associated with like being a sober-minded judge, right. and there's no flipping way that I aspire to that. <laughs> and so, many years ago, I I uh, I, I read uh, uh, 
poetry is one of the things I did. One, many years ago, this is 20 years ago, I came across a poem by the British author D.H. Lawrence, and it was simply called Vitality. Mm. And uh, I committed it to memory all those years ago. It's, it's, it's now faded from memory. But I, uh, uh, I, I realized that's a better term for what it is I'm looking for. And I'll guarantee you for me, and I, I don't need to ever preach for this because everybody has their own path. I know that for me, active addiction devitalized me. It took away you know, the, uh, the fire in my belly or the gleam in my eye, they were all really, uh, 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 I lost them. I lost them is what I did. And I wanted to regain those. And so what I'm doing now, to flash forward, I've got a project. I simply call it the Vitality Project. And it's available. It's going to be coming online. I've been doing podcasts. I've told you, do, do daily, daily podcasts. There's a Facebook podcast. Uh, 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 group that I have that I do daily podcasts, Vitality Project, but I'm getting ready to launch at the latter part of this year. This is 2019. So by December uh, of 2019, moving into 2020, there's going to be an online recovery support group that I'm going to be in charge of that will involve information, just like what you and I are talking about. It'll yeah. be it'll be daily podcasts with information and uh, blog posts. I, that's I'm already doing that, but I'm going to open it up to include uh, several weekly groups that I lead that are involve uh, synchronous dialogue. That's great. Uh, there'll also be a buddy system. Let's say that you and I are both in recovery uh, uh, that we can link up with each other through the vitality project. So it's protected. Uh, it's confidential. It's, yeah. it's confidential. It's protected. It's great. Um, so there'll be support that way. I'm, the, the idea is, is I get a lot of clients here. Let's say musicians, a musician comes out to uh, the L.A. area, to Orange County. They work with me. They have a profound transformative experience. They, get, they, they stop using drugs. They move back to Nashville, and within a week, they're, they're, uh, they're relapsing again, based on what we just talked about, the stressors, the environment, and so on. And the typical advice, this breaks my heart to say this, the typical advice is, David, why don't you go back to Nashville, see if you can find a meeting there, a 12-step meeting, and get a sponsor, and, and good luck to you. Right. It's not, it's not nearly sufficient. Yep. And a lot of musicians I work with that are not yet established don't have the money to see a therapist. They can't afford right. to see a therapist. They can't pay to go see a psychiatrist for medications. Right. And so the goal that I have with this, this uh, Vitality Project is provide something that's really affordable. It's relatively little money each week, each month to pay for oodles of support, content, etc., including referrals to people like you. And uh, we're going to see if it works. So that's what I'm doing, the Vitality Project. Anybody that's interested, this is shameless self-promotion. Please, yes. Go to vitalityproject.life vitalityproject.life and there's a place there that has more information you can check that out so think, anyway think, i'm way invested in that way invested of course in that. sounds like a great project and everybody you know people may not be able to you're right afford not everybody can afford therapy or a psychiatrist but people can afford facebook right and yeah, and yeah, click yeah, into yeah, a group yeah, yeah, so yeah. let's let's talk about that that the whole crux of that then bob what can musicians do that that you have found as a recovery coach that can work, that can yeah, help. Yeah. I really draw on the mind, body, spirit model that we've been talking about. I've been very influenced by inter 
technical recovery. My dear friend, John Dupuy, it's D-U-P-U-Y, is a guitarist. He and I play music together whenever we get together. John lives in uh, Utah. He wrote the book on integral recovery, the first book. There's now three books out on it. And I've been very influenced by John's work, and he has a heart for musicians as well. And so what he would say, I'll channel John right now, is that it really is a body, mind, spirit thing. And how that looks is that I need to address my physical health uh, primarily. You know this from Maslow's hierarchy, is that the physiological is the foundation for all the rest that follows. That includes my creativity and my generativity as a musician. So I've got to attend to things that's so basic uh, that we miss it. I've got to attend to things like diet, sleep, uh, exercise, uh, self-regulation, which includes yoga, meditation, uh, uh, prayer, whatever. And right in the middle of that is any addictive uh, substances that I'm using. And so that's such an issue for so many musicians. And so right off the bat, as you address the body, and uh, we're all works in progress, David. I mean, sometimes you eat poorly, sometimes I eat poorly, so on it goes. It's just like keeping our eyes open, beginning to kind of like take notice of that and alter things gradually. So that's one piece. The next piece would be to address the mental the mind, and I include in the mind the emotional, the emotional. It would be like whatever I have going on that, that's getting in the way of that. If it's, I work with people that have creative block, I work with people that have high anxiety, performance anxiety, I work with people that uh, uh, have a hard time getting motivated because they're operating with kind of a subclinical depression. It's like addressing that, and that can, that can involve a, a number of resources, including recovery coaches or therapists like you. And so I feel like that that's, that's critical. You, you can't bypass that for the sake of, for long. It's not a good long-term proposition for me to avoid dealing with the psychological, the mental. And then the, in terms of the spiritual, I, I would include in the spiritual, like we talked about earlier, whatever resources resources one has to keep uh, alive uh, spiritually. I, uh, it's my draw to music is that it's, it's, it's always been the source of the greatest kind of right. spiritual uh, right. uh, regeneration for me, for sure. I tell you who I've read that's had the most influence is, and you have probably too, is Miyagi Csikszentmihalyi's book, flow just forget the author flow and he describes this and i mean that describes spot on my experience at its best as a musician and it's really the entry point into spirituality for me but whatever i can do to cultivate diverse resources spiritually what's included in all of this is to look at relationships because i feel like all of us are relational beings you mentioned attachment theory earlier that's why it's that's why it's at the top of the heap right now in psychology because we're so integrally uh, relational. And so people have relationship issues that need to be addressed. And then if I would add one other piece, these are the things that I work with. I, I just got an email earlier today. I'll be meeting with somebody next week that wants to work on integral recovery. What does that look like? Well, we're talking about it. As you begin to address and kind of diagnose how are we doing across multiple systems, the one that we haven't talked about would be uh, uh, in the realm of finances, uh, so it'd be economics, how are you situated socially in terms of fitting into society, especially if I'm working with somebody who's, you know, most musicians, um, I don't know if this is most musicians. A lot of musicians have all, have have been kind of the odd man or odd woman out, and so they've had a hard time feeling connected to normal society, right. uh, et cetera. I'd like to talk about those things. There are people that are very bright that could – could use more schooling. There are people that don't know how to hold down a job. And so I really think there's a lot to be said just for talking about the pragmatics of living in the world. 
And it's funny, you and I have backgrounds in training in psychotherapy. There's little emphasis on that. At least there wasn't in my training. So we learn a lot about understanding people's psychodynamics, family relations, etc. But how about, how are you doing, Bob? Uh, do you have a car that runs? Right. Can, right. You, can, can, can you hold the job more than for a couple of weeks? And I just, right. I feel like sometimes the real practical stuff is really important. So my answer to you is that I look at addiction holistically. I'll, I'll tell you because of my background in psychology, I focus a lot on what people are doing to self-medicate, to reduce uh, anxiety, depression, trauma, etc. But that's not the only game in town. And I, even though I'm not a physician, I highly recommend people meet with somebody who's expert, whether it's a psychiatrist to address possible psycho, psychotropic medication to help regulate mood, or a nutritionist. Uh, you know how it goes with musicians. We eat on the run and we eat crappy food and so on like that, and right. it ends up catching up with us. So I hope that gives you a little flavor of it. Uh, yeah, no, sure. I, yeah. I think it's great. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV or the Internet. But, uh, you know, I've, <laughs> I've, uh, I've certainly worked with a lot of folks stopping addiction who uh, have had great success in the – especially the – last couple of years with some of these different medications like naltrexone or camperol that help curb the cravings, you know, because people need to. Yeah, really in support of that. You know, it's funny how it goes. I was just talking with a friend last night about this. People are still in disbelief. I work at eight different treatment centers and only one of them is particularly open to medication assisted treatment. I find it really ironic. So uh, what, what you have is there's a if I can say this diplomatically, the 12 step uh, programs were developed almost a hundred years ago. And for the most part, they're pre-medical, pre-scientific. They certainly are, you know, all the research that's been done on the brain and addiction has been in the last 15 years with brain scan technology that obviously wasn't available before. All of the work that you and I have trained in the psychology, uh, you know, uh, uh, in terms of trauma theory, attachment theory, and so on, those didn't even exist as disciplines right. 100 years ago. Right. And so for me to update is what I'm doing, but I, I, I do a lot of that in terms of reaching out. But the, the, the reality of the matter is that many treatment centers, in fact, I would say the majority of treatment centers, have kind of a love-hate relationship, if that, with medications. Right. The idea would be if you're on naltrexone, or for that matter, if you're on an SSRI, like an antidepressant, yeah. David, you're just, t- you're just substituting one addiction for another. Right. I want to wring somebody's neck right. when they talk that way, sure. but there, there is that kind of ignorance. And so I feel like it's on people like you and me, even this program, to help provide some helpful information just to clarify things. People need to be updated. And, and I really, I, I, I say this sometimes, I don't mean it literally, I think that 99% of people here in the U.S. are ignorant about the science of addiction. Sure. And I'll tell you this, I even include people in our profession. Right. As I, as I, and that means I don't think that addicts understand uh, addiction in terms of a scientific book. Addic- addicts have the advantage of understanding from the inside, but they have no flipping clue what's going on from a medical or biological perspective. Their family members sure as heck don't. They're freaked out. And I think a lot of well-meaning uh, uh, recovery workers and even therapists have minimal understanding. And so I'm on a mission if you couldn't tell. That's great. Well, we need yeah. to keep upgrading our our learning and our skills, yeah. J- yeah. just like yeah. the times. I mean, it's yeah. the wonderful, amazing stuff that 1935 and AA yeah. and the 12 step gave us, and it, we're all evolving. So, can, you know, can I can I can I add something here? You yeah. might be asking this, but let me just add this. It just makes me think. You and I are both drummers. I'm looking at your drum set. Yeah. I've got a piano over here. My drums are down below. I go to a studio and drum regularly. Yeah. I'm in two different jazz groups right now. an acoustic jazz group and an electric jazz group cover the spectrum but i want to say this and i think you'll understand this is that 
when, when a, an active addict stops using cocaine or heroin or meth, something that, that multiplies the level of dopamine in the brain so many times more than any natural reinforcer. There's nothing in the natural sphere that can compete with meth. It's 12 times your normal dopamine level. Right. Sex is twice your dopamine level. Wow. Think of that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how much the disparity is, is that even saying that, I'll, I'll, I'll look at clients and I'll say, well, what hope is there for us? Right. And they, at this point, know there's a, the body and the brain will eventually reset given time mm-hmm. from a 12 to an 11 to a nine on down like that. And I'll guarantee this. And I'm looking at a drummer, a huge resource for me in my own recovery and for any musician I work with is their instrument, is their creativity around that. And right. so I can guarantee you is that we can wake out. I'm very active musically and it's central to my recovery. So the good news is that I can get back to that. I can get back to that and actually becomes a central resource. I would say my relationships and my music are the two central kind of pillars in my own recovery. And for anybody that's musically inclined, and that would be people listening to your show, David, uh, it's a huge, huge boom. Now this background, I'll tell you what makes me want to cry is I work with, work with plenty of clients when I ask them, what avocations or hobbies do you have that you can, that you can uh, return to and begin to rekindle? So many of the clients I work with started their addictions at age 11 and 12. They didn't develop their right. drumming. They didn't develop their vocals or guitar. They didn't develop something. And so for many of them, starting from scratch. And so for people like you and I and the musicians I'm working with that have already established that, they've got that in their arsenal, and it's a huge gift. And the goal would be for somebody who doesn't to get on board with it. I'm going to send them to you for drum lessons. I mean, (laughs) if they can develop something, like and some of them will do that. They realize, if I don't develop some kind of creative expression, I'm going to be dead in the water. I think it's kind of non-optional, to be honest with you, in recovery. Yeah, and I think that goes for certainly musicians and and everyone in general. Yeah. Just finding that whatever your jam is, right? And yeah, yeah. Years so, ago, year, years ago, I went to a conference with the Jungian analyst James Hillman. It was a, yeah. it was here locally, and I uh, somebody right next to me asked him. It, it, it was a room of two hundred psychotherapists. This is like thirty years ago. Somebody said, Doctor Hillman. He had been the trainer at the Jung Institute in Zurich for throughout uh, the 60s and the 70s, and he trained a lot of therapists. They said, what do you think is the key to training an effective therapist? I'll never forget Jim's response. He responded just like this. He says, without even pausing, he says, it's to cultivate your art form. Mm. He says, cultivate your art form. And he went on to say, he says, by art form, I don't mean you have to be a musician or a sculptor. It can be, it can be cooking. It can be gardening. It can be walking mindfully. But you've got to cultivate that which in you that, that is related to your soul. He paused for a second, and then he said, and then, and then secondly, you need to read everything that's ever been written in psychology. <laughs> That helps too, right? Yeah, yeah. I loved his his priority. I've never forgotten that. It's really what we're talking about. Art and creative expression are not the province of musicians or or graphic artists or whatever like that. You know that as well as I. I can can be creative in how I wash the dishes if I show up. Right. That's right. Yeah, that presence. That that can be spirituality just in and of itself, right? I I love what the jazz saxophonist Charlie Parker said one time. He said, he says, if you don't live it, David and Bob, if you don't live it, your horn won't play it. Ah, I love it's it. Beautiful. That's it's wisdom. Beautiful. That's wisdom yeah, right yeah, there, right? Yeah. 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 What about uh, you mentioned it a minute ago, Bob? Family, family, and friends who are struggling with their loved ones who are addicted. How do you coach them? Uh, what advice would you give them? Yeah, yeah, 
this is one of the places I have such appreciation for the 12-step tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife was in Al-Anon, which really supports the family members, is some way to move out of what's natural is to, uh, is to move into aggression. It, it, you know, you can understand, I'm afraid, I'm scared, and I'll respond with aggression. I'll shame you, I'll coerce you, and so on like that. And so I really vote for resources for family members. I have huge sympathy because of my love for my daughter and my wife. I have huge sympathy for the damage, the incredible betrayals and disappointments. I don't feel any judgment towards family members. I want to provide a resource. So one of them is to see people like you for support. Another is to reach out to self-help support groups that are focused on that. And, and my sense of it, you know what's crazy, is if you are high right now, you can't really tell that sometimes. And if I'm in active addiction, you can't tell that sometimes. And so a husband will look at a wife or vice versa, and they'll talk to them because they look like the lights are on. Right. Uh, well, they may be on, but there's no one home. And so I really like educating. I do a fair bit of this. In fact, when I was in Idaho in the morning, I met with family members. In the afternoon, I met with therapists. When I was in the morning, it's to, it's to, it's to educate them to understand that the typical things that you would want to communicate, like, David, I need you to change your behavior. They don't work with somebody who's an active addiction. I explain why that's the case. And so I do what I can to encourage them to leverage outside resources. Get this person to a therapist. Get this person to a doctor. Get this person to a treatment center and so on. Is that you can't out-logic addiction. You can't really, you can't reason with it. It doesn't make sense to do that. So it's just, a, I feel like, I feel as, as strongly an urge to educate the family members of, of, of uh, addicts as I do with addicts. Is the family members are the resource. Because you asked me earlier, on, most addicts that I work with that are in recovery, they don't wake up one day and decide they're going to stop. It takes somebody saying, I've got a phone number, I've got somebody coming to pick you up, or, or, or worse, you need to get out of here, and kind of tough love. So I really recommend resources for family members, as well as understanding the limitations of what would work. You know, one of the typical refrains, David, is, David, if you love me, you wouldn't do this. Right. And there's not an individual I'm working with in, in addiction recovery that would say anything other than what I'm going to say right now, which is, I do love you, and I can't stop using it. It's not about love at that point. It's just that the, the, the addicted brain will trump love and connection. And it's very painful to the person on the receiving end, but it's not about love. It's about the power. I'm not really a religious person, David, by nature, but I will say addiction is the devil. Yeah, it is. It is right. the devil. It is the devil. Yeah. Well, and it's the old saying, Bob. Right of the the drink. Uh, the man takes the drink and drug, and then the drink and drug takes the man. Right. That's exactly. So, it. That's yeah. exactly it. That's yeah. Right. And, yeah. Well said, and, yeah. And 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 love can be part of the healing equation and part of the hope and recovery. But I I agree. It's not about love at that point. It's about the, they're caught in that trap. So, yeah. yeah. What what have we not covered, Bob, uh, so far today? Before we wrap up, that uh, that you feel like is important or of value to our audience that's watching or listening on the podcast? I, I do have one thing that just came to my mind. Thanks for inviting that. Sure. Is that uh, uh, I want to open up our conversation from being kind of this niche conversation about, oh, oh, you know, they're talking about addiction. I'll flip the channel or whatever like that. I want to talk about this for a second. The statistics are, are, are useful here. Is that one out of four Americans right now over the age of 12 are currently clinically addicted to substance, and included in those substances are alcohol, 
They include nicotine because it's so yes. uh, destructive and so yes. addictive. Yeah. And then all the other psychoactive drugs that we've talked about. So one out of four. And they pick over the age of 12 because that's how early it starts. So one out of four. You go, one out of four, that's not that many. Well, that's over 75 million Americans are currently clinically addicted. And only one out of 10 of those ever get help. That's really depressing to me. Yeah. Only one out of 10. Of, so you have that kind of prevalence and only one out of 10. But there's another statistic that will just humanize this for me. Uh, I was a normie or so I was. They call it a normie. Somebody wasn't addicted. I was a normie until my uh, uh, mid-40s. I had never inhaled a cigarette, David, until I was 45. That's called a normie? Yeah, a normie. There's a normie. That term. Okay. That's, okay. That's what that's what addicted people call normies. It really has kind of a pejorative connotation. Yeah. It's yeah. like I, you're like a flipping normie. But uh, there's also some envy underneath that. So yeah. I, I, somebody who's non-addicted. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I was I was that until I was addicted. And once I got addicted, I it opened up a whole other world to me. Not the least of which was the horrible shame and self-retribution that went with that for me, as well as judgment. You know, you know, one thing for sure, if you're an addict, it's not a compliment. Right. <laughs> you're walking, you're walking right. out with a scarlet A on your forehead. Right. But here's an interesting statistic that we can finish with this maybe, but that uh, there was a nationwide study done just a couple of years ago. They asked people, uh, outside of the substance addictions or what are referred to as behavioral addictions or you know them as process addictions. Yeah. And so that's all, all the other things we can get addicted to. The, 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 the low-hanging fruit here are, you know, uh, 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 compulsive sex, gambling, uh, overeating, compulsive overeating, right. uh, uh, overspending, some of those things. Yeah. But basically, any behavior that you do so much of and you can't stop that's doing damage, that's the definition of an addiction. Well, the, the survey asked people... Outside of substance addictions, they wanted to ask you, do you have at least one behavioral addiction going on right now? I should, by the way, include social media, internet, and computers, right. and all that. Yeah. That's a, that's Video a games. Sure. Video games. Thank you. Video games, all that. So you include anything that's a behavior that I can't stop that fouls me up, basically. And the statistic, this, this is an amazing thing. 90% of adults said, I have at least one behavioral addiction going on right now. Right. I'll sometimes present that statistic to groups I meet with, because I'm always curious about that 10%. And you know what they'll say? Yeah. They'll say they lied. And I'll say, <laughs> and I'll, and I'll, I'll be, I'll be kinder. I'll say, I think they didn't understand the question. Yeah. Right. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that it, I'm surprised it's only 10% because there's so much stigma. We've yeah. been talking about stigma around mental health yes. and addiction. Who yeah. wants to admit something that has a universal? Right. Uh, you know, a negativity towards it. But if, if we open it up that way and then include this, is that the root word uh, from Latin for addiction comes from addictus. The root is addictus. Mm. And addictus in Latin simply means slave. Interesting. And then it opens it up to me to think about, well, every one of us, David, you, me, every person that we know knows what it's like to be enslaved. If it's not to heroin, then it's to eating. If it's not to eating, then it's to overworking. If it's not, it just, the list goes on. And so my wish in that is not to shame anybody, but can we just, can we just acknowledge with humility that we're all in the soup on this one? I'd like to leave with that is that it's not just musicians that are addicted and it's not just drug addiction that represents addiction. We're all in this. And so, you know, uh, it, it's, it's like, what can I do to address that? I, I tell clients I work with, if somebody indicts you for addiction hmm. and gets holier than thou, just know that they're being a hypocrite. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Know? Don't exactly. get too high on your horse. And I don't, I, I totally understand. It's only one out of four that are addicted to substance. And addiction to substance is really scary and really death-dealing. But, um, 
but we're all in this. There's not a one of us that doesn't understand what it's like to be able to control. So can we just level the playing field and have the kind of conversation you are having? That feels good to me. You know, before I met with you today, I was hoping that we would have this. And I, it's been, it's way more than I could have imagined. I just wanted to have a conversation with you about something yeah. that's human. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's part of the answer is that love and compassion versus judgment or those moral issues. Yes. We're all human. We're all in the same boat. And, yeah. you know, we're, we're trying wherever you are in your stage of your path, we're all trying to sort of walk towards the light, so to speak. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm trying to get addicted to gratitude, Bob. And um, I'm, I'm really grateful for you for being on the show today. <laughs> Let, let's end with, uh, uh, we'll, we'll sort of bring up the energy a little bit because you're we're both the drummers let, let, let me mention two things i gotta say yeah, this right please. now yeah. we, we just said this two of the practices that i started those years ago and i do every day one of them is gratitude practice and uh, so i be addicted to gratitude i practice yeah. it every morning and i actually i i uh, i'm so grateful for that in my life and it it's i spend five minutes in gratitude across the range in my life the other thing i spend five minutes with every morning is forgiveness practice mm. and all i mean by that is if if I've done something to offend you, David, I, I re rehearse in my mind apology to you. If you've done something to me that's on my mind, I, 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 I grant grace to you. Awesome. And, and the finish of it is, is that I review how I'm doing with whatever I did to you or anybody else, and I grant uh, self-compassion to myself. You know, if you do something, if you practice paradiddles every day, you're going to get really damn good at it. Right. If you practice gratitude or if you practice Love forgiveness it. every day, it gets to where it's like that is second nature. So That's right. be addicted. For all, by all means, so gratitude. Yeah, yeah, gratitude yeah. and forgiveness. Those are yeah. good addictions right there. Yeah, yeah. And let's let's end, Bob, with the favorite drummer of all time for you. Mm, mm. I just made a list because I get asked this question a lot, and you do too. I've got thirty favorite drummers wow. of all time. Okay, can I, yeah. get, can I get can I give you a, a sample top of couple? Yeah, of course, of course. Okay. Please, my, my current favorite drummers are jazz drummers. I love Brian Blade. Is at the top yes, of the list for me. He's a jazz yeah. drummer right now. Amazing. I've been very influenced by jazz drummers like Jack DeJohnette. Tony Williams probably is at the top of the list for me. Yeah. But I have a lot of rock and roll in me. Ginger Baker just passed away. He was my first major influence on rock drums after Ringo, um, mm -hmm. uh, John Bonham. Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, uh, the list goes on. I've got literally 30 drummers. That, that, <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 you know, at, at the end of the day, Tony Williams, uh, for his work with Miles Davis in the 60s and after that, I probably had the most influence on me. He's like of another order to me. Right, yeah. That's, like, that's, like, that's another level of something. Talking about a spiritual <laughs> spiritual level yeah, right there yeah, with Tony yeah. Williams, right? When, when, he, when he died, he died prematurely, as you know, uh, after a surgery at age 51, Carlos Santana was interviewed and he said, you know, uh, in, in, in every hundred years or so, there's, he, he actually compared him with Bruce Lee. He says there'll be a Bruce Lee. He says that Tony Williams was the Bruce Lee of drumming. Wow. Somebody like that comes around every hundred years or so. <laughs> so. Right. And that's, that's inspiring right there. So we'll, let's go put on some Tony Williams. It's Dr. <laughs> Bob Weathers. Thank Check you, him out at drbobweathers.com. You can find him on 21st Century Drummer Magazine and his podcast. Bob, thanks so much for being oh, on Rock Therapy Show yeah. today. Happy to be with you. Happy to meet you, David. Thank you. Blessings to you.
Very cool episode. What did you think about that? We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it. And if you want to watch this interview, there's a video too. You can check it out on our YouTube channel, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, musiciansontherecord.com. Until next time, I'm David Ward. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 